0: This message was recorded during a Cornerstone U class given at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. We want to look at just a few texts. Now, these texts, we could spend hours (laughs) on each one, right? So my point in doing this in terms of giving some kind of overview, right, is to now sort of we've talked about some sense setting Jesus within the Bible. Now, looking at specific texts that give us who Jesus is and His incarnation, uh, his, and then tied to His work as well, and these texts we can look at many, many more, right? But these ones are particularly um, important for not only their content, but they will offer for us as we then turn to the third session on the church, right? Key points that the church had to put together Uh, to make sense of the Jesus of the Bible and the presentation of him, right? And to hold all of it together. That's what theology is doing as we develop doctrine, right? We work from the whole counsel of God and make sure we don't leave anything out. (laughs) And it's uh, these texts and parts of these texts that are so foundational to then eventually the Chalcedonian Creed and the confessional standards that we then say, this is who Jesus is and this is what he has done uh, for us, right? So the text that we want to look at, you can turn to John 1, I've already alluded to this, John 1, it's really 1 through 18, is seen as the introduction to John that gets unfolded through the rest of the gospel, but this is famously, right, it's such a crucial, crucial passage. We won't look at all of it, but we're going to pick up a key points in it. So John 1, 1 through 18, uh, Matthew 1 and Luke 1, so those together because they're giving us the vir- what we call the virgin birth, that really is the conception that is unique, nothing unique about the birth. Mary delivered Jesus without potosin and in a uh, you know, feeding trough and everything else, and there was no halo on her head, and she went through pain, and, but it was the conception that was supernatural. And uh, Colossians 1 15 through 20, particularly verses 15 through 17, 18 through 20 give us more of the work of Christ, 15 through 17, crucial, crucial text in the history of the church, and also a couple theological points, and then Philippians 2, 6 through 11, the famous, famous passage where Christ now empties himself, what does that mean? And then uh, Hebrews 2, right, so those are the passages, obviously we can't look at all that, but Picking up the key points. So John 1, 1 through 18, right? The introduction, right? Only John um, goes back to eternity, right? So Matthew uh, begins with the genealogy, the announcement of the conception. Luke does something similar, not with you know genealogy comes later, but you know, Zachariah, Elizabeth, the announcement to Mary. Mark begins with the ministry of Jesus, but John, John, as the last of the writers of the New Testament, um, he takes it back, and all these four Gospels are complementary, takes it back to eternity, and that's so, so crucial, right? So if we are to say, who is this Jesus, right? Who is the Jesus of the Bible, right? Well, he starts off by saying, you can't think of the Jesus of the Bible apart from the Trinity, right, apart from the eternal relations that have been there forever. right? So he begins, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And then verse 2 picks up the withness. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Well, as you get to verse 3, very clearly, and you just have to say this against the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Arians and those who denied the deity of Christ, right, is that this word who in John is the only use of this term, word, he does it in his, his letters as well, but uh, John then makes it very clear that this word who is the Son, who is the Lord Jesus, who becomes the Lord Jesus by the Incarnation, is not tied first to creation. <laughs> he is the Creator, through him, and even there, the through picks up Trinitarian relations, right? It's God through the word, right? It's not just that the son of God is independent creator. No, when you think of creation, you have to think of a triune act, right? It's one act, father through son, and then we add by the spirit, right? One act, but it's through the son. The son is not created, he is the creator, right? He is on the side of God himself, right? Not the creation. And that's made very evident in these first two verses, right? So in the beginning, there certainly is an allusion back to uh, Genesis 1. This beginning here is from eternity. There's always the Word, and Word is fitting. I mean, we could spend time looking at this this term, Word, where we get the word logos, right? Right? It goes back to the Old Testament, right? Everything you see about the Word of God, if you look at the Word of God in the Old Testament, is always identified with God. And God does all things by word, by speech. He speaks the universe into existence. He speaks to the prophets. He brings about our redemption. Everything is by word. And it's a fitting term now to unpack for us. Within God, there is relation. We only know that because of his revelation to us. But within God, right? God's not a lonely God. God's not just a unitarian God. He's Trinitarian. Within God, there is relation outside of creation. There's the Word who's with. And the with language here is almost face-to-face. And Word is fitting, right? Because you can't think of God apart from speech. Word here is the eternal self-expression of God, right? It's another way of getting at the Son and who He is and and the relation, the, the, the distinction of God, yet the identity. And of course, the third phrase here, the Word was God, speaks of this Word who's distinct, yet is God, right? This is where the church develops the Trinity. The Trinity isn't some strange formulation that comes outside the Bible, right? No, it comes right from the Bible. You can't make sense of this without then saying, there's one true and living God, yet there is in within God, there's relation. Father, God, Word, and then Spirit, right? Now that's so important. That's where John begins to understand the Jesus of the Bible, Jesus of Nazareth. You have to start in eternity. You have to start with the triune relations. And we mentioned that with the building block, right? But that's where John is building on on this, right? And then he speaks of the Son as creator, right? Uh, Not independent, as we said, but with the Father. Everything has been made by him. And then he speaks then of John the Baptist coming into the world, uh, bearing witness to him. And then verse 14 is so important here. The word became flesh now notice what it says here this will become a crucial crucial sort of rule of theology right to make sense of the incarnation and to state things correctly what becomes flesh well it's not the father it's not the spirit right It's not even what we would say the divine nature becomes flesh. Now, there will be a very tight relationship between the three persons and the one nature, yet there is some kind of distinction here. If you don't have a distinction, you don't have a trinity. It's the word. It's the word who's with, who adds to himself, right? And this is where we'll see in Philippians 2. The incarnation is the second person of the Godhead, the Son of God, the Word of God, adding to himself flesh. Now, flesh in John here doesn't mean just skin and bones. Sometimes flesh can mean that. Flesh here, I think, speaks of a full humanity, right? John will say this later in his letter, right? First John. If anyone denies that Christ has come in the flesh, right? Denies that he's fully human, denies Christ, right? It's speaking of his full humanity. So, John is very clear. We have to think of Jesus in terms of triune relations Father, Son, Spirit. Spirit's not mentioned here. Later on in the gospel, Spirit's mentioned, right? Uh, the word, it's the person who takes on humanity, right? Person's act. Right? It's not divine natures that act in that sense. Right, Obviously, persons and natures are tied together, but the Son takes on a humanity. From the Father, by the Spirit, takes on that humanity. And of course, you now have, in adding to himself flesh, you have within the Son of God, within the Lord Jesus, you have, this will be the language of the church, two natures. That's crucial, right? The Bible's built off of A creator-creature distinction. Creatures that you and I are part of will never become God. We do not believe, as Eastern religions do, that somehow we're blended into the universe or something where it's all one whole. No, no, no. God is God. He's been that way from all eternity. He remains God. He never changes. Creatures are creatures. Yet in the Lord Jesus, we have the eternal Son of God who's always God. Now is adding to himself something additionally. He's not blending that humanity with his deity in the sense of it comes merged together. It's not mixed, it remains distinct, right? Yet it's the Word who now is fully God, always what he's been, and now fully human, truly human, and so on. That's the significance of John 1. 14. And, of course, as we look at this, he now speaks of this allows for the Son of God to become present with us now in creation. Right? Now, when we think of God's omnipresence, right? the triune God is all-present. It's a glorious truth. It's enough to boggle our imagination, right? We're so space-time creatures. God simultaneously exists in his entirety of being everywhere. You go to the heavens, he's there. You go to the depths, he's there. Psalm 139 and so on. Yet, right, God in the Old Testament would reveal himself through created means often, right? Through fire and smoke and we call these theophanies and so on, right? Yet here what we have now is now the Son of God, the eternal Son, the Word, takes to himself a created effect, a human nature. And in that humanity You can stand before God. (laughs) This is how Jesus can say, right? Speaking through human vocal cords. He can say, before Abraham was, I am. And the religious leaders are like, what on earth are you talking about? He can say to them, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Now, what they're seeing is through his humanity but it's the eternal son who's fully God, who's taken that humanity. And in that humanity now has become present in a created effect, in a, in a, in a human nature, right? So that we can, this is how, right, in, in scripture, right, over and over and over again, we, we worship no created thing. Remember Revelation 19, John falls before the angel and the angel says to him, get up, John, don't worship me. But we can stand before the humanity of Christ and we can worship him. We can say, as Thomas said, post-resurrection, my Lord and my God. How can he do that? He's standing before a human, yeah. But the human is the son of God who's taken that humanity to himself. He's standing before the person of the son in and through that humanity. So here's John 1, some crucial, crucial passages. So he came to dwell among us It picks up Old Testament themes, greater than Moses. We've seen his glory. Uh, From him is grace and truth. That comes right from Exodus 34, where God reveals his name. I am the God of, of grace and faithfulness and so on. Now all of that has come in the incarnation. In verse 18, no one has ever seen God. Even in the Old Testament where you had visions of God, all of them are hedged and couched. No one has ever seen God, but God the begotten one, the unique one, this begotten one who is of God, who's at the Father's side. That goes right back to verse 1. He's there with the Father, now in space and time, by adding this humanity to himself, now exegetes, reveals the Father. We stand before the Lord Jesus, is standing before God but it's seen in and through his humanity. I mean, that's what's being emphasized. No wonder he is then the full revelation. <laughs> no wonder if you stand before him and hear what he says, he says, I speak with authority, right? He speaks from the Father and so on, right? So John 1, crucial, crucial text, right? So Trinitarian relations from eternity. It's the word who becomes flesh, not the divine nature, not the Father, the Spirit. The Son becomes flesh, two natures, And now he is able to be visible from now and forever in that humanity, right? When he returns again, we will see him in his glorified humanity. And in seeing him in his glorified humanity, we know and experience the presence of God, right? And then through that humanity. Now, what is the means by which all of this takes place? How does the word become flesh? Well, Matthew 1, Matthew 1, Luke 1, we'll just make some points here. And just simply observe that, you know, it's still fashionable. Old liberal theology and even contemporary evangelical scholars somehow think that you can dismiss the virgin conception and, and, and you're not going to lose much. I don't think so. <laughs> not only is it not only taught in two Gospels, which is enough. You taught one Gospel would be enough, right? But it is so crucial to understand how the incarnation take place, right? Without Matthew 1 and Luke 1, we'd have no idea how the word, the the eternal word, the eternal son just showed up. How did he become flesh? How did he take on a human nature? How did he add to himself that created humanity, right? Well, Matthew 1 and Luke 1 tell us. Luke is is probably most specific as the Angel Gabriel is speaking to to Mary, right? But it's very interesting here and it makes sense, right? You have a ring of truth here. I mean, you just just put yourself in Mary and Joseph's shoes (laughs) as all of this takes place, right? You would need a visitation to both of them, wouldn't you? Think of old Joseph. He knows he's betrothed to Mary. He finds that she is now with child. He has not had sexual relations with her. He knows something. He knows Mary is a, is a godly woman. And he, it's like, how do you explain this? Right? I don't think the first thing he's going to think is there's been a virgin conception. Right? You have to have the angel visit him right? uh, to give him assurances. And he acted in trust and in faith and in confidence. Right? And it's very, very important that you have this occurrence. It's, it's not surprising, right? And as it's given to us, it's interesting how it's presented. It's not speculative. It's not embellished, right? Some of the early Gospels uh, that are, you know, they're not really Gospels, false Gospels that are written outside the four Gospels. They have all kinds of speculation, embellishment, Jesus blowing, you know, breath into pigeons and then bl- in flying. And we have no record of that. And even here, we don't have an embellishment, but what we have is rooted in the Old Testament. Right? God, who has made promises, now is keeping his word. What God has anticipated in the prophets has now come to pass. Right. So as he approaches, as Gabriel approaches Joseph, right, uh, it's, he's described in verse 18 and so on as from the line of David uh he's described he's told that mary is has child she is conceived by the holy spirit in that holy spirit language goes right back to the old testament you have to go look at the prophets right this isn't just language out of the air right the new age that the prophets speak of is bound up with the spirit right and so it's automatically driving him back to the old testament right he calls him son of david don't be afraid and then he gives this name, you are to name him Jesus. He'll save his people from their sins. That has to be an allusion to Jeremiah 31, right? So here is the promised new covenant age coming. Here's the Lord now doing his work through Messiah. I mean, that's the whole context of this. And of course, it's grounded in prophecy. He quotes Isaiah. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord said as a prophet, right? You spend a lot of time looking at Isaiah 7, right? There's a whole debate as to, You know, is this a direct prophecy that Isaiah gives? You know, a virgin will conceive. I think it is. That's an older interpretation. Uh, Some say, no, it's not. We don't get into that. But here, very clearly, right, God has anticipated, right? He didn't do anything out of the blue, right? And if you look at the Old Testament, right, there's unique places of redemptive history. There's unique patterns of birth. (laughs) And this is the most unique. (laughs) Abraham can't have a child on his own apart from God's initiative. Isaac can't have a child apart from God's initiative, and Hannah, and so on, these unique places. Now, this is not just God's initiative through a husband and wife, but now it's initiative to bring from a virgin. This is the bringing into the world of the second man, right? This is how it's presented here, and particularly in Luke 1, you have a lot of not only theophany themes from the Old Testament, overshadowing, but... When you have the work of the Spirit, so turn to Luke 1, 29 and following, you have new creation themes as well, right? And this is how the Bible will set up the first man and the second man. The first Adam and the last Adam, right? And Jesus is presented here in this conception as now being the first man of the new creation. He brings a whole new order. He brings a whole new Reality in that sense, in terms of the new creation. And this is how it is presented. Of course, that makes sense, right? Now, God, through this coming of the Son, keeps all of His promises to pass, right? So we have here Mary being mentioned in verse 26. Um, She's surprised by the angel. Don't be afraid. You're highly favored. Uh, He says to her, verse 31, You'll be with child and give birth to a son. You're to give him the name Jesus. He'll be great. He'll be called Lord, uh, son of the most high, and even that son of the most high language is, is kingly language. Yet it's blowing all the categories, isn't it? Right? Here's the son who's not just human, yeah, but he is ultimately more than human. Right? The Lord will give him the throne of his father David. There's the humanity. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. Right? And of course, this comes right out of the Davidic covenant promise. Yet this son, even as we see in the Old Testament, is more than a human. How will this be? Mary said. Right, and she's not indicted for that question. It's a good question. She wasn't so naive to not know human biology. Right? We don't think of these ancients as dumb. They weren't dumb. They knew of just full well how things, you know, babies came about. And so she says, "How is this going to be? I'm a virgin." And then you have this language: the Holy Spirit will come upon you. This is picking up the prophets. It's picking up creation imagery, all the way back to the spirit brooding over creation. Now the spirit is at work again. Come upon you. The most high will overshadow you. There's a kind of theophany, you know, coming upon. And the holy one to be born. Notice it's holy. The holy one to be born will be called the son of God, will be the son of God. And this son now is not only human son, but it blows the cat. This is John 1 son language and, and, and so on, right? But notice he says here the Holy One, right? Mary is fallen, in un, contrast to Roman Catholic theology. How then does the Son of God now be sinless? How does he not have a fallenness as Mary has a fallenness? She contributes, you know, that which is fallen. Yes, but by the agency of the Spirit, it's made holy. It's sanctified. So that in the incarnation, the Son takes to himself through Mary, right, by the agency of the Father and Spirit, he takes to himself that which is sanctified by the Spirit, right? And so he is the sinless, unfallen, holy one. Right? Now that's the means by which the incarnation takes place and it speaks of him taking on a true humanity. In the same gospel, in Luke 2:52. And this becomes very, very important in our thinking about the incarnation, right? When the Son of God takes on a humanity, He's not just a phantom human. We read in in, in verse 52 of Luke 2 that Jesus grew in wisdom, stature, in favor with God and man. Picks up Samuel language. But He grew in wisdom, stature. Stature certainly refers to His physical growth. So he grew from, at <laughs> conception, right? Grew in the womb. He grew as a young infant and adolescent and teenager and so on. There's growth in wis- or stature and there's also growth in wisdom. Wisdom has to speak of growth in knowledge. Growth in wisdom is the application of knowledge. It assumes a human mind. It assumes uh, human will. Now, This is why the church, when it comes to uh, you know denying heresy, any view that compromises the full humanity of Christ was seen as out of the bounds. Right? Just as you were out of the bounds if you denied the full deity of Christ. But you have these passages that speak here of true human growth. Now, why is that important? Well, again, in the context of the whole Bible, it's important because... We ultimately need a last Adam to obey. We need one to identify with humans, ourselves, and to represent us. He must be human, otherwise, you don't have a Savior, but he's going to have to be more than that, right? And these passages here then speak of the means by which all of this took place. Now, Colossians 1, Colossians 1 15 through 20. Glorious, glorious passage. It's been hugely significant in debates in the history of the church. Um, And there's a number of points here that I just want to pick up, right? Set in the context of the Apostle Paul praying for the Colossian church, giving thanks to the Father, right? So, verse 12 giving thanks to the Father, the Father has qualified us to share in the inheritance he's placed us in the kingdom of the son and even as he describes the son it's the son of the father the son of the father that uh, the, the father who loves the son right he says the kingdom of the son he loves the father loves right speaks of the eternal relation of father and son we have in him redemption the forgiveness of sins who is this son right well Verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, right? You can't think of image here apart from Genesis 1. Yet, of course, as you put all of that together, right? The true image, the Hebrews will speak of it as exact correspondence, right? The true image, the exact correspondence of the Father from eternity is the eternal Son. You and I, when we're made in image, we're just creaturely image. This isn't speaking creaturely here. This is speaking of him from eternity. This is similar to word language, image language, radiance language. All of those are words that capture. There's distinction of father and son, yet there's equality. He's God equal with. He's the image of the invisible. You can't be the image of the invisible God without being God. <laughs> yet there's distinction. Right? So he's the image of the invisible God. He's he's firstborn over all creation. Now that was a famous, famous Denier Arian text in the New Testament in the in the first centuries, and it's a famous Jehovah's Witness text. Right? firstborn, right? Many many people say, well, firstborn means you come in time, right? You have a firstborn child, you're in time. Well, that could be one way of using firstborn, but firstborn can also speak of supreme over. Psalm 89 speaks of the Davidic king as having supremacy over other kings, so it uses the firstborn language and so on, right? Well, which which is it here? Well, context is crucial. He who is the very image of the invisible God, he's the firstborn over all creation. Verse 16 is definitive, right? Because. <laughs> because. Why is he firstborn over all creation? Because he is the creator. He doesn't fit in the realm of creation. He's not a created thing he doesn't in jehovah's witness thought, right? or arian thought. he's the first created being. that was that statement that all these evangelicals got wrong, right? no, no, no. he's not the first created being. he's the one who is the creator of all being. <laughs> he doesn't fit in the created realm. and that's the point of this text here. image firstborn because he is supreme over because in him, and even the language of in him, all things were created. The way the, the tense of the verbs is used and, and, and so on. And put in the, the passive is speaking of father through son. Right? Creation is of an agency of the father through the son by the spirit creates. He is God equal with God. Right? That is, and that's eventually the creeds will say light of light, and God of God, and so on. Distinction, yet he is God equal. And he is the creator of all things. Heaven, earth, visible, invisible, thrones, rulers. That means everything came from him. (laughs) And then notice it not only speaks of creation, but it speaks of providence. Now, even before he gets there, he makes, Apostle Paul makes an astounding statement that gives us the very purpose of creation. Why did the triune God act to create? Well, there's a sense in which, right? He created, Right. For his own glory, right? I mean, that's crucial. And it's for his own glory through the Son. Right? Notice you see in verse 16, all things were created by him and for him. Here we have something in the eternal plan of God, right? That the triune God, right, creates, rules, redeems for his own glory, but it's uniquely mediated. The glory of the Son to the Father by the Spirit. But this Christological focus, and you see this in Ephesians, you see it in Colossians, you see it in the whole Bible, right? All things created for him. We have to tell people that, right? I mean, the Jesus that we're talking about when we (laughs) proclaim Christ to them isn't just some, you know, human religious leader running around, right? This is the eternal Son of God, that he is the agent of creation, that he is the one who has made us for him. And of course, people, as they run from him, We'll never know who they are. Do you wonder why people have identity issues today? (laughs) Well, if you lose God as your creator and you lose the Lord Jesus, right? Lose the Son of God, you'll never understand who you are, right? You have to see yourself in light of Him, right? And then verse 17 is so, so important. It's enough to boggle your mind and and, and the church had to wrestle with this and think through theologically how we make sense of this. Verse 17, he is before all things. So that speaks of him. He's not part of the created realm, right? He's not the first created being. He is before all things. He is in the beginnings the word, eternal. He's before all things. And in him, in him all things hold together. Now, to understand this fully, right, you have to have a grammar lesson. And the grammar lesson is this, all things hold together is put in what we call the perfect tense. Perfect tense speaks of past action that continues.? Right? Present tense, present, but perfect past action that continues, right? And it's also put in the passive here. So as again, it's the father through the son sustains. that started after creation, right? creation and then sustaining all things, and that continues forever, right? That continues from the past in the present. Now, who is the Apostle Paul speaking about here? Well, he's speaking about the Son of God who has come. He's going to go on to verse 18 to speak about the Son of God who has become incarnate, the Son of God who has died, the Son of God who has reconciled us, the Son of God who's done all of this. Well, how is it that in the incarnation, the Son of God, not only prior to the incarnation, sustained the universe but that even in the incarnation, he continues to sustain the universe. This is what, right, the church had to reflect on. You have it in the early church fathers. They'll say that even in the Virgin Mary, right, the Son of God is sustaining the universe. And that is a true statement. So we have to find a way to be able to think through, boy, how do we make sense of, the Son from eternity, this Word, who's fully God, who is the agent of creation, who sustains all things, continues to sustain all things, and even in His taking on our humanity, He continues to sustain all things. It's not as if once He took on our humanity, the Son of God ceased to act divinely. That's heresy. Right? There's a lot of people hold to it. But the Son of God continues to act as He's always act as the triune Son, Now in theology, this is going to be called, it's identified with a number of people, Calvin particularly, but it's going to be called the extra. The extra from Latin just simply means outside of. And what's going on here is that the Son of God has always, always, right, as God the Son, in triune relation, created, sustained, rules, one action of God. Yet in the Son of God taking on our humanity, he's not limited to that humanity. He does grow in wisdom, stature, favor with God, right? Luke 2.52. Yet he's also able to act outside of that humanity. And you have to say that in order to do justice to this passage, right? He doesn't sustain the universe in his humanity. His humanity is like ours, weak, right? It's, he doesn't have all power in his humanity. He doesn't have in his human mind. He has to learn, right? Luke 2.52. Yet, he is fully God and is always fully God. And he then is able to act outside that humanity. So the same, and of course this is important as, think of even as the one who goes to the cross. Does the Lord Jesus go to the cross as a victim? Hardly. Does he go to the cross as just in the wrong place at the wrong time and under the power of Rome? Well, he puts himself under the power of Rome. But he goes to the cross as the sovereign Lord of the universe. Yet he, in that humanity, submits himself, not only to his Father's will, but he goes to the cross willingly, accomplishes our salvation. Remember John 10, no one takes my life. <laughs> I have authority to take it, and to give it. Right? And he stands before Pilate. You don't have a clue, Pilate, who you're talking to. Right? Yet he obeys to death. That's crucial, right? There's a lot of people today that think of, you know, Jesus, you know, in terms of uh, a victim or a martyr or so on, or, um, you know, he was abused by his father. This is totally foreign to the Bible. This is the divine son. This is the son who's acting inseparably from the father, right? Uh, Who is accomplishing our salvation. So those are crucial, crucial passages. Verse 17, he continues even in the incarnation to uphold the universe. We have to say that, right? Philippians 2. Philippians 2. Go back to Philippians. Philippians 2. There's so much here. I mean, just just the first thing to note about Philippians is how such deep, deep reflection upon and theology upon the incarnation is set in the context of practical living. Um, Christ is setting for us an example. Now, he's not setting for us an example in the sense of you all become incarnate like him or something. No, 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 no but his attitude, right? His attitude that then spills over into how we relate to one another and how we think of each other. Verse 5, Philippians 2, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, right? Now, what's this attitude? It makes sense of verses 6. There's a real transition here in in, in the passage. 6 through 8, the subject of all the verbs is the Son of God. It's the Son of God who does not consider equality with God something to be held on to. It's, it's the Son of God who takes to himself. It's the Son of God who adds. It's the Son of God who humbles himself to death. And then in verse 9 through 11, you have uniquely the agency of the Father, right? The Father who exalts him, who gives him a name and so on. Tied to his obedient work. There's an exaltation, right? We speak of this in terms of his humbling himself in incarnation to death and then exaltation. All that's tied to his work. Very, very important. He is exalted as the incarnate one who has obeyed for us and now rules twice. He rules the universe as the son of God from eternity. He's always ruled the universe as the triune son. And now he rules as the incarnate one. Uh, and he does that, same with our redemption, right? Uh, God creates us and then he buys us back. He owns us twice by creation and redemption and so on. Right? But here we have Philippians 2, who being in very nature God. That's a very way of saying he is God equal to God, right? It's not that he becomes God. He already has that, right? He's already in the very form or nature God, right? He did not consider that something to be clung on to, right? In the sense of this is the attitude, he was willing to humble. That doesn't mean he sets aside his deity. There was a whole view in the 19th century and so on that tried to say, well, when the Son of God and the language here in verse 7 is he emptied himself. Right? Charles Wesley's great hymn, He Emptied Himself of All But Love. It's a great hymn, but bad theology. Right? Um, so here it says here he emptied himself. Many people said, well, in the incarnation, the Son of God emptied himself of his deity or emptied himself of his, uh, even the use of his divine attributes and so on. Well, Colossians 1 won't allow that, right? He continues to stay in the universe, right? Yet the emptying here, the son's emptying is tied to the attitude. He is willing to add something, and that's the important point of verses 7 and 8. There's two ways of speaking of the taking and the being made, It's an addition. This is why we say in the Incarnation, it's not subtraction. It's addition. The Son of God who, from all eternity, shares the glory of the Father and the Spirit. He now adds, and in that adding, that's humiliation. In that adding, He now adds a human nature so that in that human nature, He grows in wisdom and stature. He lives in this world, this fallen world. He experiences, you know, growth as a human. He experiences uh, the hatred of people. He experiences uh, temptations and trials and so on, right? All of the ways, but he is not losing anything. He is adding to himself, right? It says here, the very nature of a servant, form of a servant, made in human likeness, found in appearance as a man, and then, Even to death he humbles. There's two humblings. Incarnation all the way to the greatest humbling is cross. And notice it's an obedient cross. That obedience theme runs all the way from Adam who disobeyed (laughs) to Christ who now, unlike the first man, thankfully, obeys. He obeys all the way through his life incarnation all the way supremely in death. And by obedience, Romans 5, we are justified. Right? Uh, by obedience, we are made right before God, declared just before Him. So Philippians 2, so incarnation is addition, subtraction. So John, right, you have triune relations. Right? You have the Word, the person of the Word. The son takes on a human nature. Not the father, not the spirit, not the divine nature. There's two natures. The means by which this takes place is the virgin conception. Very, very important. We would have no understanding of how this takes place apart from that act. And the way it's presented is the new creation is dawned in this one. Colossians 1, who is the very eternal God, image. Ruler over the universe because through him all things have been made, firstborn. He is the one who sustains, has sustained, continues to sustain. All of our life and breath is sustained by the triune God in and through the Son. And he then, Philippians 2, it's addition, not subtraction, the incarnation. Uh, Notice here, the Son is the subject of the verbs I said in verse 6 through 8. It's the Son who takes. Now again, in other passages of Scripture, we have the Father sends the Son... You think of the agency of the Spirit in the virgin conception. It's by the Spirit that he becomes incarnate. Do we set those over against one another? No, you have to put them all together, don't you? So what we have here is passage after passage. This is what we call triune agency. Right? The Father in the incarnation is involved, but differently than the Son, right? in the sense that the Father sends, the Son takes to himself by the spirit it's all one act right even in creation it's one act but it's triune father through son by spirit in the rule over the world it's triune father through son by spirit in the incarnation it's the father through the son by the spirit it's not as if the son takes to himself a human nature independent of the father or the spirit it's in relation to the father and spirit yet it's only he who does so And so those are crucial truths that eventually will show up in church's reflection on this. And in fact, when we come to the next session, we'll see even in your statement of faith, right? It's laid out for you. There's a whole statement in there on the Trinity and the relations of the Trinity and the work. This is work, right? This is tied to incarnation to work. It lays it out there beautifully for you. And this is the biblical grounding for that. And then just let me allude to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews, the whole book of Hebrews, is, is the glory of Christ. I should say, glorious book. The opening verses of Hebrews chapter 1 again pick up similar themes that we've already seen in Colossians and John, Philippians, and so on, right? Here in Hebrews 1 1, we're reminded that God spoke, right? God spoke to the prophets, the Old Testament era. Now in these last days, verse 2, it's all through the Son. Right? The Son is the one who's brought the whole revelation to pass in him. Right? The Old Testament is authoritative, but it was pointing forward. It was leading to the coming of the Son of God. Right? The Son of God is described as heir of all things. I think that's referring to his, his work. He's heir of all things because he has inherited all things by his unique work as priest. No one... Won't we'll get into that, but then it goes on to speak of him through whom he made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory, exact representation. That's very image language, but it's not the same word, but it's the same idea, right? He you have in scripture, who is this sun? He is the image of, the radiance of, the exact representation, the word of. That's another way of saying distinct yet god equal. <laughs> Creator, sustainer, and so on proves. All of that, right? And then he sat down at the right hand, assumes incarnation, assumes his work, right? And the author unpacks that. But in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 and following, you have probably the most um, extended treatment of why the incarnation took place. (laughs) That's a glorious question to ask, isn't it? Why did the incarnation take place, right? Uh, Why did God the Son become human, what do you do that for? Right? And it's said in the context here of angels. Christ is greater than angels. Chapter one, text after text after text of the Old Testament Christ is greater than angels, right? Because he has a greater name, he has a greater honor, he, he's ruler. He is not just the Davidic king, but he is the Son of God who's creator and Lord overall. Right? But in chapter two, he's greater than angels because he becomes human. No angel can become human, no angel's even an image bearer. But in the Son of God, he took on our humanity. And this is pretty much in Hebrews 2, 5 through following, a last Adam theme, even though Adam's not mentioned. Right? What's mentioned here is Psalm 8. And Psalm 8 is a creation psalm. Remember the psalm? Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And then as David, who writes Psalm 8, looks at the heavens, he's amazed that you made us humans great. Right? You made us to rule over creation and so on. He's going back to Genesis, right? He's going back to Adam, right? And what the author of Hebrews will do here is explain why the Son of God became human because it's only by becoming human that he can fulfill Psalm 8. It's only by fulfilling Psalm 8 in the sense of taking on our humanity that he then can be one with us identify with us to represent us right? this strongly picks up his humanity and the importance of his humanity right? apart from the son of god becoming human you have no redeemer and it must be a full humanity but he must be more than human he must also as we've said be god right but in here we have the strong emphasis and of course it moves to the priestly theme the very end of chapter 2 verses 17 and 18 the whole passage is moving to he did this to become a faithful merciful high priest well what's a high priest well in the old testament right in the old covenant the priest was one who identified with the people came from israel the tribe of levi to represent them and that whole imagery now that whole importance that whole truth is laid out for us Why did God the Son become human? Because apart from him becoming human and then obeying for us and dying for us and becoming our great high priest, you have no Savior. None. Why is Christ alone Lord and Savior? Because the kind of Redeemer we need, given who God is, (laughs) given what human sin is, given who we are, given our disobedience, given all of that, is this one alone is the only one suited to meet our need a perfect human who obeyed in that humanity who undid the work of the first man and who takes his own demand upon himself right this is why you need both a fully god a fully human redeemer now this is where the church will move isn't it and it's very interesting right the church will guard like mad, (laughs) guard with a vengeance, any view and deny any view that compromises certain biblical truths. And what are those biblical truths? We need a redeemer who is God the son. Anything that compromises his deity, no way. That doesn't fit with scripture. And in the end, you have no savior. Any view that compromises is humanity. No way. Because you need both. Fully God, fully human. That's the only way that we can be justified and reconciled and redeemed and forgiven and so on before God, given the God of the Bible, right? And those truths you have to lay down so crucially. And and, and the the scripture is, is giving you those truths, right? Step by step by step by step, right? So as the church formulates and puts together in response to heresy in response to various denials they do so not only to be faithful to scripture which they are but also to preserve for you a redeemer right that's why these issues aren't just abstract right these doctoral issues you say man how do you wrestle with some of these things? And how does an incarnation take place? And you know you talked about him sustaining the universe even in the womb. I mean how, boy that's just enough. Do you need that kind of speculation or, or thought or wrestling with? And the answer is yes you do. <laughs> because if each of those points isn't exactly right what's ultimately at stake is you have no savior. right? And that's why it becomes so so crucial. Right? The kind of person he is will give you a specific work. The kind of work necessary to redeem us requires a certain kind of person. Compromise either end of those, you're done, right? And all of that gets tied to a larger theology. That's why theology is really important, right? Because it's trying to be true to the Bible's own teaching presentation and so on. So those are some crucial, crucial texts that move from eternity triune relations giving us some hint of who it is becomes human the person of the son not father spirit and so on even elements of his full humanity full deity trinitarian relations all of that is what the church thought through and wrestled with and the confessional standards that then come from that are not contrary to scripture are not a distortion of scripture there are many liberals who think this right no in these cases in this confessional standard as we'll see it's really true to the bible it's the only way you can really think to keep all of the biblical truths together and to give you him who is one who's become incarnate for us and our salvation right so let's conclude here and then we'll pick up in the last session we'll take our break and then come back 15 minutes or so, and then uh, pick up the, where the church is at, and that's where your paper uh, on your uh, seat will come. So. This message was recorded during a Cornerstone U class given at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. You've been listening to a Cornerstone U class given at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Cornerstone U exists to have our minds renewed by the Word of God, to see who God is, and to live in light of His Word and Gospel. To find out more about previous Cornerstone U classes, visit us on the web at com forward slash cornerstone dash U.